You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Coming up later this hour, the story of Imtiaz Shams, a young man, uh, grew up in Saudi Arabia, moved to London, and was honest with himself that he said, no, I don't believe in my religion anymore. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. The consequences can be anything from fatal to not a good afternoon. So he didn't just run away and try and get on with stuff. He felt other people must be going through this and so he set about helping them. He does sterling work with effectively underground railways, helping people um, who are, the word is apostates from Islam. He's got a lot of things to say. It may confound a few of your assumptions. MTM Shams. Can't recommend him highly enough. He's going to be later this hour. But next up, Plain English. There is such a thing in New Zealand called the Plain English Awards. I'm kind of glad. I'm guilty, um, but I still think it's a good thing. Orwell was well behind this. Use Plain English when it all, unless it's necessary otherwise. Oh, there are lovely descriptive words, and there's nothing like a wide vocabulary. But poncing about. It's just pretentious, really, isn't it? Find out about it after this commercial break. The Weekend Variety Wireless. There's a fascinating thing that's happening every year. I don't know for how long. We may find out. Uh, it's called the Plain English Awards. It's an exhibition of the lexiconography of uselessness. No, I've just done it myself. Um, the, plain English, <laughs> the, plain, the Plain English Awards is kind of self-descriptive. One of the people behind it, Gregory Fortain, what are the Plain English Awards? Uh, good afternoon, Graham. And the awards is basically saying that for many of us as punters, we want people to understand when we deal with government or we deal with service providers and we sign documents, what's in and what's out and what is it that they're saying to us? It's very much about clarity. And is this in plain English or do I need a lawyer to interpret what I've just signed here? Why would you not use plain English all the time? Oh, that's a great question. I guess most of the time, Graham, we have lawyers write stuff for us in the event of stuff going wrong. Most of the documents that you and I sign. I don't think we ever read the terms mm. and conditions. And it's written for if the worst thing happens. So if I'm going to sell a house, notwithstanding this, nevertheless that, etc. Where if I sign a deal with a real estate person to sell my house, I just want to know what will they charge me, what's in and what's out. What happens if they sell the house? What happens if they doesn't, if they don't sell the house? But I end up having to sign a 20-page document, which I never read, or otherwise I have to pass it on to a lawyer. Mm. I don't know why they can't just give me a one-page in plain English. Covering ass, I suppose, is one of the reasons, because things can be <laughs> interpreted differently if it ever goes to court. But I see people not using plain English or using unnecessarily florid or obtuse English to yep. um, make out they're smarter than they are. Yeah, yeah, I think there's sort of 
we get into the vitriolic diatribe and we want to show off just how cute and smart we are. <laughs> but for me, this is more about the consumers. And yep. so with the Plain English Awards, there's 11 categories from the champion organization and the best plain English legal document to the best sentence, etc. And then there's the tool, which are the people's choice. The fun thing about the awards for me are the, the, the shockers. Is there a category for, oh, for, oh, my freaking God? Yep. It's called the brain strain. That's the bit that makes the Plain English Award sexy. And, and we've had organisations from state services, etc., who've won that brain strain award. The good thing is many of them, except for one, have turned up and accepted the award with great humour and gusto and promised to do better next year. And many of them, in two or three years' time, have come back and collected another award for turnaround, etc. So those are the two sexy ones, as opposed to the 11 categories where uh, it's more the service providers moderating themselves and wanting to win awards. We've got the links to the Plain English Awards up on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage on all the media uh, formats that, that we can. How do people enter or nominate? You can either nominate who you think should be awarded, and, and we should be more focused on celebrating the good ones. Oh, no, come on. Yeah. We want the shockers. We want to exactly. expose that. That's how we improve life. <laughs> the shocking ones, the sexy ones, you go and nominate under the brain strain category. In both these categories, which is the people's choice, yeah. they are sponsored by Consumer New Zealand, so you can also go via Consumer New Zealand. But if you go on to Plain English Awards, you will find these two categories there. The other 11 are companies who self-nominate and they enter themselves. Oh, but okay. the pat on the back with the shockers, they are the people's choice. And that's really where we can get this thing going so we don't legalise and lawyerize everything we do in our lives, but it's just in plain, simple English with lots of clarity. Yeah, especially when there's no need for it to be anything other than plain English. Um, exactly. I'm going to give you a shocker right now. This is one of my favourites. I've kept this from a few years ago. It's describing a movie. Blurbs are hard to write. Are oh, you sitting down, Gregory Fortain. <laughs> Drawing together an ecology of influences... This film weaves its way through an audiovisual tapestry of relationalist meditations, political mythologies, photonic sculptures, atomic choreographies, and ceremonial homages to the world and what it means to be part of it, to engage with it, to listen to it, to embody it, and be embodied by it. You lost me in the beginning. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? For people who speak, exactly that language they understand no it's postmodernist garbage it's just, they don't understand <laughs> it just sounds good and it makes them feel good yeah, yeah oh. <laughs> gregory uh, the closing date for entries end of august 31st. that's yep that's why we're doing it now goodness i miss lucy calloway's things on business jargon have you heard her Yep, I've heard her, yeah? Marvellous. This is from 2012. She do this every year. Greg Fortain, thank you. Thank you very much, Graham. There are so many prizes to award in my latest Golden Flannel Awards that I'm axing my usual preamble and getting straight down to the business of giving out the gongs. The big news is that I've decided to supplement the prizes for Bull with an award for Cock. This stands for Chief Obfuscation Champion and is open to big-name chief executives. 
When I conceived this award a few months ago, I promised it to Angela Arends for writing in her annual report. In the wholesale channel, Burberry exited doors not aligned with brand status and invested in presentation through both enhanced assortments and dedicated customised real estate in key doors. Now, alas, I'm forced to take it away from her and give it to John Chambers instead. Last month, he sent out an email to Cisco employees beginning, Team, and ending, We'll wake up the world and move the planet a little closer to the future. Mr Chambers beats Ms Arends because he has created a concoction of sublime arrogance and cheesiness out of short household words. He is a well-deserving cock. I realise this will be disappointing to the Burberry boss, so I'm putting her in for another new award. The Door Gong. I was certain she'd win this for her outstanding effort in pretending her company sells doors when really it makes super pricey raincoats. But in the closing days of the year, I found a company called Record, which actually makes folding aluminium doors but has elected to describe itself as a supplier of entrance solutions. Staying with solutions, the next prize is the Martin Luke's Creovation Cup for combining two words to make something less effective than either. This was a crowded field as there was solutioneering from Yanmar, innovalue from the Taiwanese government and sustainability from Atos Origin. All are truly creative, but I'm giving the cup to Momentum UK for claiming that we live in a fidgetal world. From complex words to simple ones comes the Preposition Award. There are two contenders here. The first was shown to advantage recently in a statement from Lloyd's. We have made substantial progress against our strategic objectives, which suggests the bank is moving in the wrong direction. But the winner is the innocuous word to, as increasingly heard in presentations. I've got some slides to talk to. The unfortunate implication being that the speaker has to talk to the slides because no one else is listening. The next award, most extravagant job title, is always hotly contested. But this year there's a clear winner. Dr. Amantha Imba is head inventiologist at Inventium. Her job description, to turn people into innovation dynamos. Now on to the best euphemism for firing people. Lots of companies sacked people last year by consolidating leadership, but only Citibank deftly managed to hide the fact that it was axing 1,100 people in a press release that talked of optimising the customer footprint across geographies. This makes the old sacking euphemism of right-sizing look rather respectable. Since then, the word right has suffered much wrong, so much so that I'm giving it a special prize. This goes to Oliver Wyman, which in a report on the future of Asian banking came up with not only right spacing, but the downright sinister right culturing. One of my favourite awards is always for the negative dressed up as positive, and this year's prize winner is one of the finest examples I've ever seen. 
An analyst at Relegare heroically described a big drop in profits at United Spirits thus. Profits de-grew by 23.3%. And finally, the mixed metaphor award. This was overheard in a project management meeting at a big company. You have to appreciate that the milestones we set in these swim lanes provide a roadmap for this flowchart. When we get to the toll gates, we'll assess where you sit in the waterfall. All that now remains is to hand out the overall Golden Flannel Award. The runaway winner is Citigroup, which not only produced the best euphemism, it also wins a prize for jargon that actually clarifies matters. It declared that from now on it would offer client-centric advice, which lets the cat out of the bag that the advice it used to offer was otherwise. Weekend Variety Wireless. In New Zealand for something called uh, New Zealand Association of Rationalists and Humanists. It's God, it's a mouthful, and even the um, acronym goes on for half a day. But in any case, it's a, a conf conference for secularists, and there's some people doing some brave work around the world. Protecting people and protecting people's freedoms is an easy way to put it. In my book, MTS Shams is in New Zealand for this. MTS, thanks for um, for coming in. Thanks for having me, Graham. All right. Your story, your special story is around Islam, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. I left Islam probably about five years ago. It's not an easy thing to do, and it, it's nigh an impossible thing to do and live in some countries, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, people do it all the time, but you never hear about them, and it's, it's, it's often because there's government sanctions, there's family sanctions, there's just people self-censoring because they're scared, so you never hear about it. What was your story then? You were brought up Islam where... Uh, actually, so I'm British, but I was raised up partly in Saudi Arabia. So I spent 10 years in Saudi. And then it was in East London for about, uh, you know, nigh on 16 years. People that want and, and, and are yearning for freedoms that aren't accorded to them within a theocratic state, we might as well stick with Islam here, get the opportunity to move with their family to somewhere like Montreal or Germany or London. And when they get there, they find that they're stuffed again yep. because there's this weird thing that actually Islam gets a special pass in. It's like Islamic intolerance is tolerated again. Yes, yes. I feel yes, for those people. Yes, 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 absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I find very fascinating, and I say it quite often, is growing up in Saudi Arabia, in some ways it was more progressive than in East London because... In East London, you know, you've got you're not in a theocratic state, so you you're fighting something because th your identity is within a is, is a minority within a large, non-religious state. So what happens is people cling to the identity of religion, and so if you're raised up as a Muslim there and you decide you don't want to believe, um, you have nothing to latch onto because you don't know other people who've left it. Not only that, the wider society is saying that you being a Muslim is who you are. So essentially, your own society, your own community, your Muslim community is essentializing you and wider society is essentializing you. They're telling you, you should be Muslim too. So this is really funny interrelationship with how uh, the majority will essentialize Muslims just as much as Muslims will essentialize themselves. Uh, what were your experiences in, oh, I suppose the word is coming out. Yeah, 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 yeah we use coming out. As, yeah. as yeah. not being Muslim, for one, being yeah. an atheist, is it? Uh, I'm a humanist atheist, yeah. Humanist yeah, atheist, yeah. okay. Um, what was your experience? Uh, can I swear? 
Yeah. Really. And the fact that it was. Let me let me tell you this, uh, Graham. I was the only ex-Muslim, as far as I was concerned, the only person to leave Islam out of 1.8 billion people. That's how bad it is. That's how isolating it is. And we kind of laugh about that today. But if you speak to other ex-Muslims, they'll say the same thing. They'll laugh. They'll be like, yeah, I thought I was the only one. You speak to even ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll say the same thing. So it becomes something that you find in high control communities and religious groups where people think they're the only one because that's there's an incentive to let people think from a young age that you can't leave it. So imagine you're that isolated. You think that out of 1.9 billion people, 1.8 billion people, no one's left. So that's the beginning point. That's not even the story. That's the where it started. And then after that, it's, oh my God, there is other people, but they're all online. So you find them online. And then for me personally, it was trying to meet them in real life. I'm a human person, right? So I like to meet others, people. So I was, I was meeting people in Starbucks and kind of going, please don't kill me. And, you know, it's fine when you meet them and, you know, it's great. And then I started setting up groups around the world. Uh, I set one up in London. I set one up in Australia. Uh, and uh, these groups are like Fight Club. You can't talk about it. You have to be vetted twice. You can't join unless you know someone who knows someone. It, there's one in New Zealand, actually. They're the people who actually invited me to this conference today. Really? Yeah. But you won't know about them. You won't hear about them. You won't know how to join them. You'll have no idea. Secret groups. They're secret because there is fear. There's absolute fear. I mean, the fear is multifaceted, right? So you've got, sure, you've got like, my dad might kill me, right? That, that's, that's, there's a fear for some people for that, especially women or gay people. But it's not that common, especially in places like New Zealand. The real fear is I'll get outed. I'll lose any freedom I have. I'll, you know, uh, I'll lose the family I love. So, you know, we, we often talk about death when it comes to apostasy and leaving Islam. But actually, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the problems. Mm. And it, it's very similar to being gay. If you're gay, we don't talk about gay people being killed as their biggest and only problem. Right? We understand that discrimination is everywhere. You have very small behavioral things, like someone might look at you funny, all the way up to people being pushed off buildings. And with leaving Islam, it's the same thing. With leaving religion in general, it's the same thing. There's lots of different types of discrimination. And so, for example, I knew a guy getting getting his haircut, just getting his haircut, Somali guy. And the guy, it's in Ramadan, it's the fasting time. Now, this guy ha has a kid, he's, he's not been religious for 10 years, right? The, the barber's saying, oh, are you fasting? Just a normal question, we ask this to each other, right? And this guy's obviously not. Now, he's having to think, do I need to out myself as an ex-Muslim? And the guy's got blades to his neck. And the guy says, and he says, no, I'm not. He just decides, I'm, I'm going to tell him, no, I'm not. What's he going to do? The guy goes, you know, I have blades on your neck he was like ha 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 you know I have blades on your neck but can you understand that 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 fear that you have that you don't know what will happen with your community in your life is right down to your core it's that fear of the unknown of being able to just be you mm. and that's what you see from people as young as 14 all the way up to 85. Uh, constant stress is such a de debilitating thing it can muck with your immune system why do you think people kill themselves there was a girl, there's a woman who jumped off the 10th floor. She's an ex-Hasidic Jew in America because of the fact that they're, they, they, were, they were trying to take her kids away because she left uh, the Hasidic Jew, Jewish uh, community. Yeah. Okay, a lot is made from tacitly progressive leftist people, I suppose you could say, in defense of mm. Islamic dogma because mm. if you criticize it, you're... Uh, Afraid of being called racist? Yeah. Or, I don't know, I just can't see this blind... 
Why do I see that it's a bloody blind spot and the people with the blind spot don't see it? Have I I'll got a blind spot? I'll tell you spot? why. What? Because you're not racist. The people who do that are racist. And I'll tell you why I know this. I'll tell you why. Because we feel it. Ex-Muslims feel it. I am I am, I am. generally a bit central leftist. When I was young, I grew up in a very racist school where my nickname was actually terrorist. Like, I've got a t-shirt where they've got drawn bombs, you know. And that was my nickname. It was terrorist. It was like a band lad banter thing, right? But, I mean, it was also clearly quite racist. But I almost prefer that over the kind of racism I'm getting from people who are, you know, think they're doing the right thing. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. They look at me, and when I say something that doesn't fit into their essentializing worldview of Muslims, they're racist towards Muslims, by the way, just as much. They, they look at Muslims and go, you're Asian or you're Arab, and thus Islam is part of who you are. And if you do anything outside of the box, you're gay or you're you know, an ex-Muslim, you are doing something that makes you a coconut. You're white. Don't talk to me because you're not Asian anymore. Right? So there's this real racism in the left when it comes to uh, ex-Muslims and anyone who does anything different from what people's stereotypes of Muslims are. This is a problem with identity politics. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, 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 it's cannibalizing itself, actually, because you have these oppression Olympics building. And I love, I love that game. So I'll meet someone and they'll say some crazy stuff to me about, you know, what they think Muslims go through. You know, I grew up in a Muslim community. I'm from a Muslim background. And then I'll say something slightly different and they'll be like, oh, no, no, you don't understand. I'm like, are you, so you're telling me. And it's great when they're not Asian or brown because then I can play the race card. And I'm like, oh, so you're telling me you're, you're, you're white explaining it. To, and, you know, I, I don't believe that stuff. Hmm. But you can help them see how absurd that position is. They can use their own bullets. It's great. It, it, it's, the, it's my favorite pastime. It's to like really use people's bullets against themselves. Right. And I think it does make people think because they think, I'd like to be optimistic and think people have this introspective characteristic to themselves. I have seen people change. You know, people, you know, a lot of leftists. I've come across more leftists today than ever before that are becoming introspective about things like Islam. There are feminists out there who, some of them are really terrible when it comes to Islam. They just, they shut down other women you know, because they're not the right kind of brown woman, because they don't believe in the hijab, for example, as a as a as a as a good thing. But then there's also leftists out there and feminists, for example, who will look at this and say, you know what, this is a lot more complex than we think, and let's not essentialize people. And act so things are changing. Like I don't want to be negative. It's a oh. problem, but I th I feel like we're getting to the point where it's starting to change slightly. I actually find it uncomfortable, the word leftist being sure. used, either as pejorative yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or actually yeah, thoroughly yeah. descriptive. I agree. It doesn't, it doesn't work no. for me. Is this leftist? I want um, the hard-fought-for freedoms hmm. uh, that lesbians, gays, hmm. um, apostates, atheists, anyone, those freedoms that have been hard-fought-for from women. I want them to be preserved. Yeah. And when I see them being shut down, I'm upset. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Is that you, not leftist? Yes. And, and you know what? For me, this should be a nonpartisan issue. I think actually, like, I would say I'm on the left, but to be honest, I think that we divide a lot yeah, of yeah. times, you know, and... and, and, and the problem we're seeing is that that division is creating this kind of far left, far right thing that's what we're seeing now in the media. Mm. And I think a lot more people are a lot more open to these conversations, but no one's having them. No yeah. one's really having them. And people get so uncomfortable with political correctness that they, in doing that, they shut down the very voices that they're trying to protect. Mm. Okay, MTS, you've done a lot of work and... Mm. I've got to say, you know, it, it's, it's reasonably brave given the circumstances of what you've described. Helping other people that 
are honest with themselves when they've come yep. to the conclusion, I don't believe anymore. No matter how dangerous that is, it's a, it's a must be a tough thing to do. You're helping these people. Mm. What do you do? Usually people think that they're all alone. So they think like me that there were 1.6 billion people and they were the only one. The first thing is how do you connect them to others? Um, so it's usually involves me finding someone who's local to them or finding a group and saying, can you you know, vet this person so they can join? In a societal level, a lot of it is about education. People don't even know we exist. I think the third thing is actually working with religious communities. Uh, as much as I think ex-Muslims are divided on this, like how much do we want communities which we often find were oppressive to us to be even part of that conversation. I'm of the opinion I want to talk to Muslims. I spend a lot of time talking to Muslims. I'm here in New Zealand speaking at this conference, but I'm speaking to three other professors of Islamic theology. And it's because I think they're humans too, you know? And, and, and I, th I think on the surface, a lot of them want to believe in freedom of belief. Even if they don't always promote it, I think a lot of people do want that. And you need to push them to a point where they actually act on the things that they say they will. Mm. So so I think a lot of it for me is going to be also working with the religious communities to try to... Because look, oftentimes religious communities will try to own family. They'll say, oh, we are about family. But actually they're not because they're breaking families apart. They're saying what a family looks like. I'm in the business of trying to keep families together. I don't want people's families to think they have to cut their child out because otherwise they might corrupt everyone else or whatever it is. A lot of our work is kind of on that level. The key thing we're doing now, so I'm, I'm, I've got a charity called Faith to Faithless. So we train institutions. Just uh, last month, we did the Metropolitan Police of the UK. It's one of the biggest police forces in the world. And uh, we train governments, we train universities, counsellors, therapists. That's kind of the aim, what we're going for, because often they let apostates down. Ex-Muslims will come to them for help. I mean, this is real cases. Come to them for help, and they'll say, you left Islam, why don't you go to the Muslim support community? Right? They don't understand what apostasy means. Back in the fire. Yeah, but go back in the fire. And you know what? We probably had that, and we still have that with LGBT people, but we understand that's stupid. Yeah. And yet, when it comes to apostasy, somehow we don't even care. Uh, I'll give you another example. So, uh, there's a very young girl who contacted us, and when it, anyone's under 18, we immediately sent them to charities that deal with children. We did that. We gave them a hotline number. They called them up. The person listened to them and said, it sounds like your problem has come to, from leaving religion. Why don't you go back to your religion? 14-year-old girl. right? And that girl then didn't trust any institution, no. barely trusted us. I mean, they were fine with us in the end. We gave them a better hotline. But you can understand, and she was, you know, she was not eating. She just, she was, she was becoming a, a, sh a shell of her former self because she can't, you know, the adults who were supposed to protect her didn't know how to do it. Yeah, I, I can imagine she would have felt the only soul on earth, like there is no help anywhere. I can show you my e the emails. It's, it's if you read them, they're they're even worse than that. They're disgusting. Like the fact that her dad was abusive, and then she called the hotline up, and they the same the people that we said you should go talk to, we sent her back. It just tells you like how deep the problem is. Mm. It makes me very angry. But no. uh, the actual fate of apostates throughout the world goes underreported. Yep. Uh, I, I think for its horror value, as an affront to freedoms, I, I think mm. most of us, I certainly hold dear. Bangladesh, Pakistan, absolutely. There's yep. a journalist yep. hit list, yep. and not necessarily journalist. You know, even someone who's found blogging. That is something that could be called blasphemy. They're working their way through the list my charity by did killing a, them. My charity did a, uh, did a panel with two of them. Asif Moinuddin, who was the first blogger who was stabbed, 
and with uh, Arif Rahman. So the stories they're telling, you know, the problem is that people often have this opt- optimistic view about ideas. You kill enough people, you will actually shut it down. Yep. And people forget that, like China's doing that right now with some of the Muslims in the Uyghur district. And they're killing them and they're jailing them. And actually, it's working. Muslims are starting to be scared. And they're making, and just like that, you can do the same thing with ex-Muslim atheists. You kill enough of us, there'll be a chilling effect. And there is. Mm. And it works. So they know that. Yeah. Try this at home. Draw a picture of Muhammad. Say it's Muhammad. Put it online. Yeah, Anyone it, feel yeah, like doing yeah, that? Yeah, no, no one's going to do Why it. Why don't you feel like doing it? Is it, be honest with yourself, is it because I don't want to insult Islam or is it the fear that something might happen to you? And do you can I take, let's talk about the drawing Muhammad thing. I've never drawn Muhammad in my life, okay. right? But if someone says that's Islamophobic, what about the Shia? Because they've got drawings of Muhammad that go all the way back. The Shia Muslims have drawings of Muhammad. Yeah, but only Sunni Muslims are real Muslims. Exactly. So it's 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 sectarian, isn't it? So can you see how it's completely... I mean, well, I, it depends who you are arguing with, isn't it? Yeah, like who yeah, you're yeah. addressing. Yeah, yeah, the Sunnis yeah. have no yeah. problem with this. They, they, no, 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 no. Do they? No. They no. say, yeah, the Shia, they, they the Shia, are wrong. Yeah, 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 exactly. So there's a real problem. And, and I think one of the problems we've had is that people who are not Muslims, in the kind of world of multiculturalism and diversity and things like that, which in many ways are honorable values. Mm. But the way it's been carried out is a very take-me-to-your-leader approach. And so they'll go to these kind of sheikhs and imams and say, and they think, oh, you're wearing the hat, so you must be representative of Muslims. How racist is that, by the way? Mm. How racist is that? Is that a woman who doesn't wear the hijab is not really a Muslim, can't really be a community representative, but a man with a beard and a hat is that's how racist it is. And, 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 and so if you look at the word Islamophobia, which is like, you know, a, a phobia of Islam, the Shia, what they think and what they have said in the past many Shia, not all Shia, about figures like Aisha, the wife of the Prophet, or Abu, ba- uh, uh, or, um, uh, the Abu Huraira, who's the biggest, he's one of the key people in terms of the, um, the, the Hadith, which is a key part of scripture. What they say about those two characters would be considered Islamophobic if someone who's not a Muslim says it. So it's really warped thinking when you attack people on the basis of ideas that you don't even understand. All right, yeah. There's a lot of talk about the right for someone to wear the hijab, well, ramp it up to the niqab, burqa, full cover. What about the rights of people not to wear it? Absolutely, I mean... It's not brought up. Yeah, it isn't, and it's because people are so... uh, you know what people 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 think they're being tactical. They think, oh, you know, the women wearing hijab are and and niqab are attacked, and they are. There's women who are attacked for wearing the hijab. It's happened to people I know. The problem is they think that the hijab again is essentialized to that woman. Mm. That is that woman is a hijabi. Yeah. They forget that that's a woman who is happening to wearing a head covering, and by doing that, they they're, they're mixing together the difference between an idea, an ideology, and the human being behind it. I want these people to know they've got an option. Yeah, yeah. And will have protection from the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they want to do that, but it's just... But you know, it's not the law they're afraid of. It's the fact that some cousin will see them without the hijab, and then suddenly they're being taken to Pakistan to be married off, or the community has just cut them off, or whatever it is. It's it's, it's that. And they need protection, though, because there's a real... uh, Someone once said uh, it took them eight months to put the hijab on and eight years to take it off. It's not all. Most Muslims are moderate and appreciate freedoms that have been hard won. They are not 
adherence, nor do they want Sharia. First of all, that's that's quite that's reductionist, right? Muslims are very diverse, but what is also a problem in Islam, you know what? I point to Jehovah's Witnesses quite a lot. This because I work with ex-JWs just as much as I work with ex-Muslims. Jehovah's Witness religion has a concept called shunning. It's a loving provision. If your child leaves the Jehovah's Witness church openly, if you do not cut them out, you get cucked out. So what do a lot of parents do? They write them these teary letters saying, I have to cut you out because of Jesus. Now that, people can look at that and go, there's a problem there, right? Most people don't have a problem saying that's a problem. With Islam, Islam didn't develop, like you cannot compare it to Christianity because the way they developed were very different. Islam is literalist, uh, by and large, how it's followed by the average Muslim, it is literalist. And so it will come with specific problems to do with how scripture is interpreted. Mm. Now, most Muslims do not interpret scripture in the same way because they'll say, you know, you'll talk about stoning. A lot of Muslims will be like, uh, you know, yeah, I agree with stoning, but it's specifically in these contexts. But stoning is a bad idea. Like fundamentally, I think we can all agree stoning is a bad idea. So, so yeah, there is a problem with Islam in terms of like, the fact that it's literalist and that by definition means if you've got Muslims who are orthodox or who are quote-unquote moderate but are literalist, they're not really, what means moderate to you might not mean moderate to us, you know. So I'll give you an example of that. A lot of Muslims, when you talk to them about apostate laws and they're quote-unquote moderate, the, the most, one thing you hear is like, no, 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 only in Islamic State. We live in the West. No. But it's like, well, so in an Islamic State, they should be killed. No, no, no. But then they'll be like, no, 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 no. Only under certain conditions that don't happen. What? So if you've got four witnesses and they don't repent, blah, blah, blah. Yes, then, man. It's like, is that still okay? The thing is, we talk about Donald Trump and what they're doing to Muslims. And it's horrible. He's saying Muslims cannot enter the country from certain countries, right? Or without extra provisions and things like that. We know that's intrinsically that's bad. And yet he's not sentencing them to, to death, right? So how are we... How do we have this weird inconsistency and hypocrisy with Donald Trump, who's doing some nasty things with Muslims, and yet when there are many, unfortunately, many moderate Muslims who do fundamentally believe in apostasy law because of literalism, how are we not tackling that? Hmm. And it, there is a real problem in terms of vision and scope because people think the West is what does bad things, right? Brown people, it's like a noble savage thing. Oh, but that's their... Oh, that's a pet on their, their head. You know, yeah, so that's their thing. That's just, you know. And, it, 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 you know, power doesn't work like that. The West is not the only power in the world. If you live in a Muslim community and you're from a Somali background and you live in, you know, Hamilton, your world is a Somali community. Yes, New Zealand is important, but actually it's the Somali community that's your day-to-day. -day. Mm. That is where the power structure lies. There are some worrying, worrying statistics from reliable uh, sources. Pew is probably the most famous... Um, polling of British Muslims because that's the only result that I've ha had at the top of my head. There are some really disturbing things. These are people honestly giving their free opinion on should, is it possible for gays to be moral? Exactly. And it and came yeah. back just about zero. Yeah. 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 Now yeah. here's the not all thing. Um, it's enough is bad enough, but a poll like that. Yeah. You know what's good though? Let me give you the silver lining here. These polls. Please. These polls. The poll on yeah. is, is gayness moral. It came out zero. But recently, there's been about 40% have said that they're okay with gay marriage, for example. And uh, I think it was in the UK, or accepting, more accepting of gay people. Okay. Things are starting to change because people are tackling. The f people find the moderate Muslim thing a bit bullshit now. They understand that you don't 
you you don't essentialize and reduce people in that way mm. and you start looking at what they actually believe and you see because you know in 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 western societies we had so many problems when we still do when it comes to women's rights when it comes to lgbt rights yeah. and we worked hard on them because they were not okay on racism like racism was such a massive my my family used to get like beaten up in in the uk because they were like brown and that's changed we don't get beaten up right we have to look at that and if you say oh muslims we have to protect them we have to you know let's essentialize what they believe let them figure it out without putting some pressure and being like hey actually the whole gay thing is probably something you need to deal with you're not going to help enact change you're not going to allow muslims for themselves and people like myself who is an ex-muslim but from that community to try to enact change in our own community you don't let us you're not enabling us to do that Mm. but it is changing again there's lots of speakers out there myself included who are starting to push things and I do think I do feel it's changing and you get accused of being anti-Islamic racist extremist yourself it's hilarious um, yeah. Uncle Tom's yeah, yeah. the whole nine yards of this don't you Ian yeah. Hirsi Ali yeah 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 Majid yeah. Nawaz yeah, yeah. trying his best yeah. Yeah. I have to be honest I, I do get that from Muslims for sure I get that just as much from non-Muslims. From That's like, what I'm thinking. Often Most of the accusations people. I hear yeah. are, are besmirching yeah. people yeah. that are of this opinion yeah, yeah, yeah. are coming from academics, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're terrible. Yeah, yeah. Some, some academics are really terrible. Like, they live in this bubble, right? And this, and it, But again, what works really well is absurd humor, right? They, do, they throw that accusation at me. If someone calls me a native informant, I ha- I'm not an angry person, right? This happened once. Uh, this, you know, someone called ex-Muslims native informants and it was one Indian woman and one a white convert person and the ex-Muslim community really got angry because we're all living in brown communities. We're all minority groups or we live in the Islamic countries, right? So you can imagine the, the bubbling anger that came out when someone was using the word native informants. Mm. That is such a racist term when you, th- you know, when you don't even think about it very deep. Mm. So for me, they're taking my ethnicity away. They're whitewashing me. They're saying I'm a native informant. I'm a, like, you know, the, the, and, and I think the anger worked. People realize that's racist and they don't use it as much anymore. Uh-huh. The Uncle Tom thing, the coconut thing, it's really dropped in its use because we've, we've become more vocal about it. Mm. Uh, we don't stand for that kind of racism. It's just not okay. And people understand racism. Right, so if you coach these things in the languages that people understand, racism, sexism, they're starting to understand. Or do they understand it? Like the, there was that article in Australia that uh, the Muslim communities um, predominantly against gay marriage. Mm, yeah, yeah, I and, remember that. And yes. yet were yes, protected yes, yes, by yes. the people, uh, excused by the people for gay marriage, are saying, "Oh, you, you don't understand." You it was. It was even worse than that. It was on your migratory journey. You're not in that space to be to be uh, polled about this. Uh, does that make sense? It's the most racist. It's so racist. Because you're saying, you know, they'll use words like, you know, you P words or you N words, right? You guys are way behind and we're going to poll you later in the future when you're with us. How racist is that? Patronizing. It's so patronizing. And actually, what was really good is Ex-Muslims with that did come out saying what the hell is going on with that kind of language. And I did see quite a few Muslims also because Australia has quite a diverse Muslim community. There's lots of extremists. There's lots of like quite progressive Muslims who are really feeling trapped in between a rock and a hard place with their own communities, essentialization and also 
you know, with the fact that they want to be a little bit more liberal. In many ways, a lot of Muslims are, young Muslims are in support of LGBT rights, more younger ones than I've ever what seen before. What a great sign. It's a good sign. And so they're the ones who are, who are coming back against these racist people. You cannot poll us differently just because we're different communities. Try and guess who I am at the moment. I'm going to do an impersonation. Waiting for it? It's all a problem of Western evil imperialism and Trump. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's nothing to do with Islam. It's Western imperialism. It's Western yeah. imperialism yeah. and foreign policy. Yeah. Let me tell you a story about that, actually, if you don't mind. I was at a, I was at a um, uh, talk about uh, Islamic human rights and, 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 and things like that. And the speakers were one person who's from Amnesty International. They were pretty good. One person from an organization called the Islamic Human Rights Commission. They're very dodgy. They're, they're quite Islamist. And another person who's an ex-extremist, but I, quite dodgy still, right? And there was a guy there who's a leftist, anti-fascist person. He's from a Jewish background. He had fought fascism for a long time on the streets. And then he's an older guy now, you know. And he was supporting them. And I was like, listen, mate, like, I get you're anti-fascist, but these people are homophobic, right? They're they're anti-ex-Muslim. They're like, they believe that gay people are abominations. And this guy's a liberal. Or, well, you know. And I said, how can you... And his excuse was, ah, but in the wider power structure, it's the Western imperialism that's bad. The fact that they're... And I was saying, okay, let's think about this. So a gay Muslim from their community who's suffering, they don't feel the burden of... of they don't feel attacked and the homophobia from these people? And he just shut up and he walked away because they have no answer to this and they want to convince themselves of this idea that the Western imperialism is the only big bad wolf in the, in the world and they forget that human beings are more than the West. And again, it comes down to who do you think the world is? It's the West. It's the West versus East. It is, you know, the, the, people often talk about Orientalism. Isn't this Orientalism? Yeah, it's what I get from Chomsky and it worries me so much that he's so... Um Obsessed, it, it is kind of Eurocentrism. He would Incredibly. maintain it's the opposite, yeah. but it, it's it's no, it's it's yeah. the other way around. And I, I have to like to be fair, I haven't read so much of his recent work, but and and you know, I hope people who are academics start to change their tact on that because it is causing so much harm mm. to minority communities. It's so, not as if foreign policy, Western mm -hmm. foreign policy, hasn't had an effect. Sure. But, okay, there are a couple of things that would make me question it very, yeah, yeah, very yeah. highly yeah. as the only reason yeah, and the yeah. major reason the amount of attacks that go on with in the western world mm -hmm. they get reported mm -hmm. but have a look at um islamic attacks yeah, yeah. bangladesh 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 pakistan pakistan yeah, yeah, yeah. pakistan yeah, somalia yeah. somalia yeah ah but they'll say ah oh, but this is all to do with foreign policy because pakistan was you know the, but the problem is you, you don't even have to and bangladesh let, let's go let's go be, before let's like so i was speaking to someone uh, just a month and a half ago about mm. about jihad and extremism and they were saying that one of the things is that the western imperialism created jihad and this person had clearly not studied islamic history now i'm not saying islamic islam is necessarily a violent faith i'm not whether it is or not i'm not taking that position what is true is historically like the sokoto caliphate in africa they african Af nigeria had muslims way before the jihadi stuff they had Muslims just part of the communities. And they had a very syncretic Islam. Like, it was very mixed with tri African tribal traditions, right? And then there was jihad from the north coming down. And there was a specifically the Sokoto Caliphate people. They came down. So there was jihad. And this is like back in the day. This is quite old. And then you can go back even further and you can find jihad way back then. So it's not like jihad is a new concept. 
right? But the problem is people live within this Western imperialism bubble and they forget that the world is at a history way before the West, right? The Islamic empire was massive. You can't take that away. You, the fact that there was slavery in the Islamic empire should not excuse the transatlantic slave trade, but you can't just go, the transatlantic slave trade was the only slave trade. It was the worst and it was the only one when there was 80 million people who were enslaved within the Islamic empire. And it's easy to join a dot from Medina. There's all of Islam. Then you stretch it to Spain yeah. and all the way to central China yeah. Yeah, and yeah, Indonesia. Yeah, 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 it was a massive empire. That's imperialism, isn't it? Is it just me? Or, or do you think that that spread through people going, yeah, sure, take no, over my no, land? No, 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 you can't be imperialist. You're brown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very interesting that the more you look at kind of how people talk about any, anything that's non-Western, when it comes to tribal warfare, when it comes to like cannibalism, when it comes to slavery, it happened everywhere else because we're all bloody human beings. MTS, uh, good luck with your work. Thanks for um, having me. And I hope it gets better and better and you, you carry I'm, on with I'm it. Optimistic. I'm optimistic. And help as yeah. many people as you can because, God, um, they, they're crying out for it. Thank you. Uh, weekend Variety Wireless. If you've been listening and have been wondering, where's John Divig? He's very popular and polarizing. Um, he'll be back next week, I think. Um, he's just doing something else this weekend. All right, after the new sport and weather at 11 o'clock, a fresh outsider's tale this week. It's the story of Thomas Brunner. Oh, boy, you've got to be dedicated to spend 550 days in what became pretty much the Paparoa Range. Go south of Nelson. You're on foot. There are no tracks. What are you going to eat? You could take some stuff. But he was in there for 555 freaking days. Not all on his own. He had a famous guide. Didn't stick with him the whole time. It's really Brunner who uh, did the long haul of this. And uh, some of the descriptions, as you can imagine, are pretty out there. Don't forget, there's the Outsiders Archive as well. That is totally, utterly complete, I'm so glad to say. And this will this particular uh, Outsiders Tale will be added to it along with the others. We're doing the same thing with the shipwreck tales as we did with Outsiders. Uh, we're playing a few shipwreck tales that have fallen overboard uh, from the archive in a transfer from one system to another, if you know what I mean. Uh, so that's going to be Saturday nights while Smithies is on hiatus. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. New sport and weather, and after that, a fresh Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh.